0: The sermon text today is Romans 12, verses three through eight. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness.
1: Anybody who's been to a doctor knows that there are certain diagnostics, certain factors that they look into to determine uh, the state of your health, right? I mean, they ask you questions about, you know, there's blood pressure and there's heart rate. There's um, perhaps even oxygen levels or taking your temperature. There's certain factors and diagnostics that they look at and they say, this is a person of health or not. Well, the church, being a body, also has certain diagnostics and certain factors that determine uh, whether the church is healthy or not. And if you're new here, perhaps you haven't been to church much, and you wonder what would make a healthy church. Maybe in in your mind it might be the size of the building, it might be the number of people, it might be the humor of the preacher, it might be the variety of the programs, but, but churches do have certain factors, certain diagnostics that would reveal itself to be a healthy church or not. What would they be for you? How would you be able to discern, if you were to come in, how would you discern that the church is healthy or not? Well, our text today has a couple diagnostics. Actually, the whole chapter has a bunch of them that we'll look at over time. But uh, the church has certain diagnostics or, or factors that determine its health. Now, you know where we are in the book of Romans, right? The first 11 chapters, Paul has been at pains to make sure that we understand how incredible, generous God is in saving us. I mean, you see about the plight that we had in the first three chapters, and then you see the provision of God and Jesus Christ being literally an atonement, a sacrifice to save us. And then we saw the blessings of this salvation that he has wrought for us, the peace, the reconciliation, the promises of of God that will never be separated from him. Death itself cannot take you apart from God. That's incredible. The greatest fear that we have is no more a fear. It's simply a doorway to see him. So all these blessings that we have are given to us by God because of his generosity. So when you get to chapter 12, he begins teasing out, well, how do we then live in light of this incredible God? How ought we to live? And of course, last week we looked at this idea to present your bodies as living sacrifices. It seems reasonable to such a God to throw ourselves to him who has been so gracious and kind to us. And so those first two verses were just kind of setting up that principle. Present your bodies, give your lives to him. He is worth it. You will be well satisfied giving your lives to him. But then in the rest of the chapter, he begins to tease out some of the more practical, some of the more detailed ways. How does this look? How does a redeemed community that understands the mercies of God, how then do they live? How do they think? Because he says in verse 2, he says, you know, that they will be transformed and that their minds will be renewed. Our minds will be renewed. What we see in our passage, at least one diagnostic is that we begin thinking rightly. We begin thinking with sober judgment. Minds being renewed will begin to see themselves differently. That's the first diagnostic. The second diagnostic is that when we think rightly about ourselves, we will begin to serve one another gladly. In other words, a right-thinking mind will, f- will cause the body, this body of Christ that we read, to function properly. So these are the two buckets I'm drawing from, that we want to see ourselves rightly, that we want to see ourselves with humility, we're going to find, and then when we see ourselves rightly, we're gonna function properly. We're gonna function properly. We're gonna function as a body, that, that the health of this body will be clear. So those are the two diagnostics we'll look at. Uh, the first one, though, is to see ourselves rightly. Now, Paul, when he's writing to us, in his mind, he's not saying, Hey, I got some helpful ideas that might get you along better in life. I mean, he's speaking, you see in the f- third verse, look at what he says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone. In other words, he sees himself being called by God to be an apostle. It's all by grace. Paul didn't deserve it. He says that later. He's the most undeserving, you know. But, but he was called by God, according to grace, gifted by the Spirit to be an apostle. So he's speaking with an authority here. He's not just kind of saying, hey, this is a thought that you might have over lunch. No, he wants us to think upon this, meditate on it, and walk in response to it. This is how we are a healthy body. But what's he say? Look with me at the rest of the verse. He says, I say to everyone among you. So this is is a a massively general statement. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now listen, Paul earlier, if you remember back in chapter 2, Paul was dealing with the Jew and Gentile tension. They kind of each thought they were better than the other. Uh, But Paul also knows what he's going to cover in verse 14, chapter 14. He's going to have to cover, how do we handle the stronger and weaker brothers? You know, there were some Christians in this church uh, that could eat anything they wanted. Uh, that They felt fine with it. Others were more conscious-bound, and they couldn't eat anything they wanted. See, we had food issues back then, too. But so, so, so he's going to deal with the tension <clears throat> in the church. He's going to deal with, with this, this idea of... of um, thinking rightly to not think too highly of ourselves so he's saying he's saying watch the elevated opinions that we have about ourselves watch the proud thoughts the condescending attitudes watch thinking that we're somehow better than another perhaps from your education your social status your position in society or the the influence you may have watch that he says don't think too highly of yourself you know we're all tending to overstate or exaggerate our own wisdom, or sincerity, or power, or knowledge. We we tend to overstate, to not think too highly of ourselves. But but let's not miss the opposite of this, which is kind of its same, which is don't think too lowly of yourself. You, you know there is that false humility, which is just another form of pride, kind of that Eeyore ish. Language, you know, I can't do anything right, nobody likes me, I'm not gifted, nobody needs me. In, in a way, it's just soliciting this, no, we need you, no, you're the best, no, we couldn't get along without you. That, that is kind of the same, this idea of we're just nothing. And invariably, we're wanting to be something. You know, John Adams calls this, the second president of the United States calls this, the, the passion for distinction that we want to have. We want, to have, we want to be distinct. We want to be different. In fact, he says it this way. He says, Whether they be old or young, rich or poor, high or low, wise or foolish, ignorant or learned, every individual is seen to be strongly actuated by a desire to be seen, to be heard, to be talked of, to be approved. To be respected, to be wholly overlooked, and to know it is intolerable. We don't want it. We either tend to think too highly of ourselves, And, and this, is, this is people. This is fundamental to us. Sometimes it can be kind of humorous. I was driving uh, home one day from church, and I was listening to NPR, and they were having, in the afternoon, kind of this uh, it was a contest. They would give a, a riddle or a limerick, or they'd give some sort of saying, And the panel had to determine where it came from. And so this was the one that I heard. Oh, go ahead, Spain, do your worst. For now in war, we are immersed. And though you declared it, our men pre-repaired it, and we look like we said it first. So they said, where did that come from? None of the contestants knew. Well, it it came from, in April 25, 1896, Spain declared war on the United States of America. And yet, not wanting to be upstaged, America declared war on Spain and predated it to April 21, 1896. We didn't want to be upstaged. But it's not just on this side of the pond. Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, of course, he wrote much on the democracy in America, he wrote about the pride between the French and the British. He said it's a different kind of pride. Here's what he says. He says, the French want no one to be their superior. The English, they want inferiors. The Frenchman constantly raises his eyes above him with anxiety, fearing someone may be higher. The British lowers beneath him with satisfaction. Just different kinds of pride. But it's deadly. And do you know that as Christians, we struggle with pride? All of us do. I mean, do you not love to be above others? You want to be funnier, wittier, prettier. We, we want to be distinguished. Pride is a persistent sin that will both divide and destroy the church. Charles Spurgeon had a word for us on this. He says, the demon of pride was born with us, and it will not die one hour before us. He says, be not proud of your race, your face, your place, or grace. Be not proud. Paul instructs us, he said, instead, think soberly. Think with sober judgment. That's what we're called to do. Uh, when that, that word sober means think of yourselves with reasonable judgment. In other words, uh, being in touch with reality. The thinking of yourself with sober judgment is not to think of yourself as you wish to be, but as you are. Uh, Thinking of yourself with sober judgment is to kind of remove the veneers, to take away the facades. To think of yourself with with sober judgment is to be honestly evaluating yourself. Perhaps you heard about the, the man who asked his friend, he wanted to be humble, of course. And he asked his friend, pray for me. Pray that I might be nothing. So his friend wisely said, well, you can take it on faith. You are nothing. You don't need to even pray about it. You are. But, but, you know, Augustine said that the path to godliness, the first is is humility, the second is humility, the third is humility. So the first diagnostic in the church, is this a healthy church, is do we think too highly of ourselves? Or do we think of ourselves with sober judgment? Well, which is it for you? Do you struggle with thinking too highly of yourself? Or do you think of struggling? Do you think, do you struggle with thinking too lowly of yourself? Both are in error. We want to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Of course, it begs the question well, how do we do this? Because we're so prone to think of ourselves as distinct and unique than other people. How do we do this? Well, he tells us in the text. Look with me back at verse 3. He says, Think of yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the first way that we think of ourselves with sober judgment is by the measurement of faith. Now, this is a classically difficult verse to translate. Some people want to see the measurement of faith as being an amount of faith. As if you have more faith, you'll think more properly. Uh, but, but faith is not seen that way in the book of Romans. Another way to look at this would be in the way that I would, I would submit to you would be the measurement of faith, the word measurement is like standard. It's like a yardstick, a ruler. It lets you know where you are in relationship to the measurement. And so Paul's saying, think of yourselves with sober judgment according to the measurement or the standard of the faith. The gospel, think of yourself in relationship to the mercies of God. Don't don't look at yourself, you know, don't judge yourself or think of yourself in relationship to other people, but in relationship to God himself. Is this the way that you think of yourself? In other words, the way that we're to think of ourselves is, I am a sinner, but I've been forgiven. I was far away, but now i 've been brought near. I was an enemy, but now i 'm a friend. i 'm broken, but i 'm being repaired. I, I, was, I, I was God was nothing to me now he 's a father to me. it, it 's it's, it's recognized it 's thinking through that we didn't merit his forgiveness, his kindness. we didn't merit his mercy, we didn't merit his love. He has just graciously given it to us. It it humbles us. It it lets us know we're all the same, that no one rises above another. And and even if you're a Christian, you still need to think this way. Perhaps you've been a Christian for years, and you really have God God sanctifying graces in your life, and you really have changed, and praise God for that. We're still remembering that we're looking at ourselves with sober judgment. And we do this in light of the cross we do this in light of the mercies of god and martin lloyd jones the preacher of the 20th century in london he he said these words there is only one thing i know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust and that is to look at the son of god and especially contemplate the cross nothing else can do it when i see that i'm a sinner that nothing but the son of god on the cross can save me i'm humbled to the dust Nothing but the cross can give me spirit of humility. And almost 400 years before that, John Calvin says, As a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by an awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself to God's majesty. So even this morning, as I was looking at Psalm 90. Psalm 90 talks about the eternality of God, that before the mountains were formed, God was. And then he moves right after talking to God being eternal, existing forever. He goes right to men and women. And he says, they're just grass. We we come up in the morning and we fade by evening. I mean, it, it just humbles us. But it helps us to have sober judgment about who we are. But he gives us another reason to think with sober judgment. And and you're going to see this in verses four and five uh, when we see that we've been invited into a body of Christ. It wasn't your good looks. It wasn't the connections you have. It wasn't the wisdom that you have exercised. It's been by God's mercy that you're drawn into his body. Look with me at four and five. He says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we though many different members are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. So what Paul's saying is, the reason that you can think with sober judgment is because the differences that each one of us have, which we want to use to distinguish ourselves, are really for the benefit of others. That God has designed the church to be a place where many different types of people all come together and are one. And then he uses this analogy of the body. Now, this is a classic analogy. I mean, we all have one body. I see your one body. You see my one body. We don't have two bodies. We have one. And yet you have different members. You have hands, you have feet, you have ears, you have eyes, you have toes, you have fingers. You have all these different members. And they're all different. And yet they all work to serve the one body. The thumb doesn't get upset that it's not an eye. The eye's not troubled that it's not an ear. Why? Because all are needed. This is why Paul almost makes fun with the Corinthian church. He says, would it be better for you all to be an eye? I mean, it's laughable, the monstrosity of the image of just an eye. How's he going to go anywhere? What's he ever going to hear? He can never touch or hold anything. And so this idea of, of the differences that God has woven in the fabric of this local body is profound. But it's for one another. It's for us. It's for our betterment. It's for our health, really. The eyes guide the feet so that the feet don't walk into areas that would be unsafe for the body. We need each other. We belong to each other. How do you view the church? How do you view your membership in the church? I mean, do you see the incredible importance, the interdependence? We live in a culture that everything is sameness and everything is individualism. I just want to do it my way. I want to be on my own. You cannot survive if you were just an I. You have nothing to eat with. Or the sameness. We just want to be with other people that are our age or play our music or, or think the way we think. Of course, that's easier just because you're standing in a house of mirrors. Everybody can be as simple or foolish, or it's the sameness doesn't help you. It's the oneness with diversity. Sometimes people say, I, I just don't fit into the church. I, I can't connect. I can't plug in. There aren't people like me. It takes maturity, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing because. Because you need those differences. And we all know this, not just from the analogy of the body, but from our own marriages. At the beginning of my marriage with Carol, it was was trying to, probably each of us getting the other to think in the way that they thought. And could never understood that Carol didn't see my rightness all the time. I know you Enneagram people want to now pigeon me as, I think, I don't know what number it is, but... But it took years for me to begin to realize that her opinion and view, though different than mine, was helpful to give me a broader perspective of an issue. And, and so I for her. And when I got over being threatened by the difference, I profited by it. And it was just amazing to me how simple and foolish I could be for so many years uh, to somehow think too highly of myself that, I had the right angle on every issue that would ever come before my eyes. And, and so you, you see, Paul, he's trying to draw us to not think too highly of, of ourselves. He's saying, listen, you've been saved by the mercies of God. Don't ever forget the cross. Because no matter where we are on the sanctifying scale, we are all in the same need for Jesus Christ. And no, and no matter where you are in this body, no matter how gifted you are, we all need each other. You know, the thumb doesn't exist for the thumb. The thumb exists for the body to hold things in a way that can serve the body. We need each other. That's his first diagnostic, to think rightly, to think soberly about yourself. Now, if we see ourselves rightly, as being saved by grace, drawn into a body, we're going to function rightly. And that's the second diagnostic. We're going to function rightly. And, and Paul continues the metaphor of the body now as he continues to how do we function rightly. Now look with me at verse 6. In verse 6 he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So Paul is speaking about how the body functions. So God has drawn us into a body. We're different, yet we're one. And God in his mercy and wisdom, I would say, uh, has given us different gifts. And he's given it. These are God-given gifts. Now, uh, these are gifts of grace. In fact, the Greek word for grace and the Greek word for gift is the same, which makes sense because they're gifts of grace. They're the graces of God to us that we can do certain things to help one another. That's what he's saying here that God has given us these gifts. Now, uh, what a gift is, is a God-given ability, it's a God-given potential to be able to do things that will help others in their walk to see him. So we've been given to each other in a journey, if you will. We're all making a pilgrimage. We need one another. So that when we see God, it's a great day. It's a happy day for us. Oh, happy day that we would see him because of the interaction and the interdependence that we've had with each other. And so he's saying, there are gifts given by his grace for his purposes. And he says in verse 6, he says, let us use them. It's interesting that he has to tell us that. Why? Because I think a lot of us tend to shrink back for a variety of reasons. I don't have any gifts. I'm a little scared to use my gifts. Maybe nobody will appreciate my gifts. He says, let us use them. Our gifts are given to us by God. You have been given gifts. The Christian here has been given gifts. The non-Christian here, I hope we can serve you by our gifts. But the Christian here has been given divine gifts, divine potential to serve one another. Now these gifts aren't something, I want that gift or I want this gift. I mean, they're not like properties on Monopoly that we can trade. And it's not like a Christian zodiac either. I'm a teacher, I'm an exhorter, I'm a mercy person. You know, I'm an Aquarius. I'm a, it's not badges of honor here. They have been given to us by God for the betterment of others, not for ourselves, strictly. But then Paul, in verses 6 to 8, he begins to kind of detail out what these gifts are. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. There are lists in 1 Corinthians 12. There's a list in Ephesians chapter 4. There's a list in 1 Peter chapter 4. So it's not exhaustive, it's representational of some of the gifts that we're going to see in the church. I I want to just take you through them briefly. Look with me in 6 to 8. He says, let us use them. So this is the body functioning properly. He says, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So he says, if prophecy, let's just take each one briefly. If prophecy, now prophecy in the Old Testament was when God would speak through a human agent to communicate God's words. They were to be obeyed. It was God's words through a human agent with authority to be obeyed. That's the way a prophet operated in the Old Testament. We see it differently in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the sources of authority are no longer the prophets, but they were the apostles. The apostles who were given the Spirit, Jesus said, to remember all that he had taught them. The apostles who wrote down the New Testament, many of them. The the apostles were now the mouthpieces of God. They were the foundation of the church, Christ being the cornerstone. And you even see in the New Testament how prophets now are to be weighed and tested. They weren't just to be accepted. In the Old Testament, they weren't told. A prophet was not weighed. Isaiah didn't say, thus saith the Lord. And we're going to think about that, Isaiah. They were not to be weighed and tested. But in the New, they are. Uh, So prophecy, and you see this. Well, prophecy, so in the New Testament time, seems to be somewhere between preaching, that's what John Calvin thought, uh, the preaching, that's what I'm doing. I'm speaking to you from God's word, explaining it. You are to test it and weigh it. You're not to take it as if God has said, everything Tom said is what God wants me to do. You you go home, you, you talk about it, you think about it, you pray it, you weigh it. Uh, and so most, many scholars think this prophecy here could be Uh, Could be preaching or it could be when you Give a word of God to another person to build them up or to convict them Let's say you're having coffee and the person's telling you about a struggle and and you have a word for God a word from God And you tell them and you ask them to believe it and you're trying to build them up That would be a form of prophesying or perhaps giving a word of instruction or a word of admonishment or, or, or a word of rebuke that could even be a prophetic statement this utterance moved upon you by the spirit with the word of god for the people of god so as to help them and we're to give those prof- and it's for a specific occasion a specific word a thought may come to you a- and you share that with a person seeking to build them up that could be within this broader definition of prophecy and and when we prophesy we're to do it in proportion or in accordance with the faith Not a faith, but the faith. When the line, when when the prophetic word steers away from the written word, that's when the flags come out. That's not a prophetic word. So so if prophecy, then according to faith. We need to do this for one another. The church functions as we speak with a prophetic voice to each other. (coughs) Prophetic voice, I want you to know, even in the Old Testament, the majority of it was speaking to people how to live in the present not predicting what was going to come in the future. So if prophecy, in service, it says, in your serving. That word for service is really our word deacon. It just means those practical aids to help people. This is incredibly important for the health of the church. Not just the prophetic word. You can imagine how the church would suffer if we didn't have a prophetic word. If you remove sermons, if you removed any sort of interaction that you have with each other on the word of God, can you imagine? We would languish in ignorance. But how about service? You know, if you think about the important role of service regarding the health of the church, so you, you think about all the practical aids from ushering uh, to Scott Forney, kind of leading a, a troop of people to make sure the grass is cut, the buildings up, the heat works, the air works. Can you imagine if he just stopped doing it? Or Ann Robertson, kind of watching over the nursery, directing the nursery, has over a hundred people that she leads. Volunteers, that's like being a CEO of a company with 10,000 people. Volunteers, it, it's different. But, but think about if the nursery wasn't cared for, it wasn't safe. Anybody listening to the sermon, if it wasn't safe down there, they wouldn't hear a word we're saying because they'd be worried, is my child being taken care of? It's a huge service to the church, teaching in the children's ministry. I mean, the sound people, always sitting back there making sure that the sound's working. I mean, you think about the health driven by those servants. Uh, the, the, to think that I have the gift of service—well, that's lower on the totem pole. Could not be further from the truth. You see, it's second line, but not just service. Teaching—teaching teaching is really just trying to make clear, trying to make clear a truth of Scripture. Uh, teaching isn't the same as preaching. Uh, teaching can be in many different venues—in a small group, in a children's. Uh, class or just over coffee again where you, you, you make something more clear teachings very very important to the church if we don't have teachers here we don't have these people that can really articulate things clearly then we remain again in a measure of ignorance or he says exhortation to exhort that Greek word just means to call alongside you know you see somebody start to struggle and you call help to them you call you come alongside and help them that's what exhorting means you know, th- this idea of encouraging. You hear parents do it all the time on the sideline of a field when their child's playing. They're exhorting, they're encouraging. And exhortation may involve rebuke, it may involve admonishment, it may involve a warning. Much of the counseling ministry under Brian's leadership and training you lay advocates and, and lay counselors. I mean, uh, that's an exhorting ministry. You are seeking to help others live in the midst of difficult contexts and living rightly. Uh, not just exhorting, but contributing, giving. doesn't have to be money. It often is, and it can be. But this idea of contributing, that you're sharing in the needs of others. Th- that a need pops up and people run to bring aid, which I think we've even seen in the, in the Sullivan's adoption. Just boom, people come to aid. Th- they give generously even. That word can be translated with simplicity, which might mean without fanfare, not in an ostentatious way. But can you imagine if nobody shared in our needs with one another? When you hit a unique medical need or financial need or personal need, nobody's there to contribute. Not just contributions, uh, but also in um, leading. Leading would be another one. Leading with zeal. What leadership is, it's a gathering together of people and bringing them to a place of spiritual good. That's what leading is. It's trying to bring about a measure where the group as a whole can move forward for the good. And you have to lead with zeal. Why? Because we're an independent people. And it's like herding cats sometimes. You know, it's trying to collect everybody together. You've got to be zealous in your leadership. It's difficult to sometimes lead when everyone wants to go this way and you all have to go that way. Uh, And not just leading, but acts of mercy. This is the last one, and for me this is the most touching one. That that these acts of mercy are done with cheerfulness. This is the exercising of compassion or long-suffering or come alongside to a person who's depressed or disgruntled. They're discouraged and, and and they need a cheerful person to come alongside, not a Pollyanna-ish cheery, but, but just someone who's serious enough and sensitive. They know the dilemma and, and yet they're happy to serve them. They're glad to be Even languishing with them. Can you imagine if we didn't have our mercy givers? Those people who uniquely can walk with acts of mercy to one another. They they come to your bed, they come to your side, they say the right thing, they don't overspeak, they don't underspeak, they just help. So, So, these are, you know, this is how we function rightly. All these gifts have to be in operation, and we will be a healthy church. A people that think soberly about themselves and with sober judgment, but a, a church that functions well. Uh, so my charge would be, uh, first, that we need to discern our gifts. Do you know what gift God has given to you? And, and if you don't, um, perhaps I could even ask you, ask somebody, or ask yourself, what do I like to do? What, have I, what do I do well? What have other people seen in me and said uh, you do that well? Interestingly, I guess ironically, oftentimes your gifts are determined in the doing of it. So it's like you you teach a children's Sunday school class and you find, hey, I can do this. This might be a gift. We discern gifts by using them. Or maybe you work in the nursery and you become the next baby whisperer. And you would have never known it if you didn't do it. And so you discover these gifts in the doing of things. So so don't leave without thinking. I I need to know what my gifts are. Maybe you can give them one, maybe you can give them two. I, I I don't know. Everybody's been given a gift by God. He has distributed to you for his pleasure to be used by, by his grace. So so discern your gifts. And, and then I would say uh, be faithful to use them for the glory of God. The, the, a gift has been given to you by God. He's given it to you, and and he wants you to use it in the body, uh, but he wants you to do it for his glory. It's a way that we worship God. So in other words, when you're in the nursery, or you're teaching children, or you're handing out bulletins, or you're working in the media, this is not just doing something that has to be done for us to function. This is being done as an act of worship. Just as Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the glory of the Father, so we serve. This is what Peter writes in his first letter. He says, each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. For to him belongs the glory and honor forever and ever. So when you're serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, exercising mercy, prophesying, that you're doing it for the glory of God, this is our act of worship. Now, let me remind you, there's an implicit warning in Scripture. You know the parable of the talents. You know, the one was given ten, the one was given five, the one was given... They're all given these talents, right? And they're given these talents for the purpose of using them. And so at the end of their life, they're called back, or at the end of their service, they're called back to the master. And the master says, What'd you do with the talents I gave you? And of course, the one that was given most came back with the same amount. And I I used them. I used them. And the next one came back, and they kept hearing, Well done, good and faithful servant. And then the one who had one gift says, Well, I buried it. I knew you were a hard man. (laughs) Bad answer. A warning on that day, that isn't the answer you want to give. He buried it. He didn't use it. It languished. He was a loner. He was scared of what people might think if he didn't do it well. I don't know what his reasoning was. I don't know what your reasoning might be for not using your gifts. But that's not the one you want. You got white hats, black hats. Don't go in that direction. Go in this direction. That you want to invest them. That's the warning in Scripture. And then the last point I'd make to you about the gifts is not just to be discerning and discovering it and not just to be faithful to God and using it, but recognize, be diligent to serve one another with it. I mean, how do you understand that the gifts that you have are for the betterment of one another? It doesn't help God. It does bring glory to God. But it doesn't help God as if he needs our gift to be exercised. It helps God's people. And so have you been faithful in serving one another? With these gifts, you know the body is better. Can you imagine, just losing an arm, or or losing sight, or losing hearing? Your 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 body is affected in the negative when we don't use these gifts. Now, when I speak about the body of Christ, I I don't want you thinking in Paul's mind is the is some idea of a universal church. There are some helpful distinctions that we can make when we speak about the universal versus local church, but I don't think they were in Paul's minds. I mean, Paul wasn't thinking of the body of Christ being in a universal way, he was thinking of a local body. He was thinking about the Roman church, these folks in Rome gathering together. You know, in, in, in the scripture, there is, no, there is no place for there to be a Christian who's not associated with a local body. It just wasn't even thought of. It's a total introduction from our individualism. That's all it is. You couldn't even imagine being a Christian and not being in a body. That's like a hand sitting on the side of the road. It'd, be a, it, it'd frighten us. What's going on? Where's the rest of the body? So, so so it wasn't even entertained. Now this doesn't mean that you don't have gifts that can't be used outside the ministries of the church. doesn't mean that. But fundamentally, Even I would say primarily the gifts that you've been given are to be used within this body. So that why? So we'd be healthy. So we can think with server judgment, and that we would function by serving one another with gladness. And I think this is really the apologetic to the culture. Because when we walk in humility and when we walk in glad service to one another, that is not seen. And we become, as it were, a light. Our light to the nations is somewhat of a byproduct of us just simply presenting our bodies to God and thinking soberly and then serving gladly. And the light shines and people are drawn and people think, I want to be associated with these people. I want to belong to them. I want to be in that family. I want to be with them. And that's the apologetic holding up the truth of the gospel because we're being changed we're being transformed our minds are being renewed let's just take a moment and i'm going to give us an extra moment sometimes i was helpfully instructed that sometimes i move too quickly and so take a moment and think through this think through how god has been gracious to you how highly ought you to think and how gladly ought you to serve might be a point and if you're here and and again, this is new to you or or you're not in the Christian faith, you don't believe, then I would just ask you to ask God to reveal himself to you. Not just in creation, you have a good example of his power and his beauty, uh, but by his spirit. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.